Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. It is a great privilege for me to be invited by the Los Angeles Opera League as well as the Flora Thornton Flora L. Thornton Foundation and the Los Angeles Opera to speak to you this evening on this opera of Philip Glass. Philip Glass's opera, Satyagraha, uh, is, is the third, it's the third opera that LA Opera is presenting. It's the second of what, is, what are known as his portrait operas. Portrait operas being uh, operas that were inspired by a single historical individual. The first one was Einstein, and we know that opera that LA Opera produced here about six years ago, Einstein on the Beach, Philip Glass's first portrait opera. This Satyagraha is the second portrait opera, and it's based on essentially the, the life of Gandhi for 21 years when he was a young lawyer and then a young activist in South Africa. And then the final portrait opera was presented last year, Akhnaten, based on the God who, in many ways, went, differentiated himself from the uh, religious base of his society, bringing monotheism to, to the Egyptian culture, which was essentially rejected when he died. Uh, but it was uh, those three characters that inspired Philip Glass to, to write these early theatrical works. He doesn't really refer to them as opera, even though uh, it's come now in the last 25 years to call them operas, but originally he saw them more as uh, dramatic theater pieces, uh, musical theater, not in the sense of Broadway uh, as we know it, but theater with music. So that wasn't necessarily the, um, the typical standard Wagner, Verdi, Puccini, Mozart opera. His structures, his ideas of bringing music and bringing theater to uh, the stage was different than the concept of these that we know from Western historical music development to come up with, uh, with the theater pieces that, uh, that we now know. Now, trying to put it in some perspective, for many of us, this is our first time seeing the opera Satyagraha. I don't know that it's been presented in Los Angeles, uh, and even if so, not frequently enough that uh, any of us probably have attended a performance of it. Uh, putting it, though, in historical perspective, its first performance was in 1980, 38 years ago. So this is not a new opera. It's new to Los Angeles opera, but it's not a new work. Giving you some perspective, Puccini's final opera, Turandot, saw its first performance in 1926 in La Scala. 38 years after that first performance was 1964. And I would imagine most of you here were born or in existence in 1964 and can remember what was going on. So the life of this opera in many ways is mature. It is a work that has been in the repertoire and been performed frequently in international opera houses in the last 38 years. So we're all coming to it for the first time 
and in that sense, we're very adventurous, but it's not, it's not an opera that you would say is, wow, this is really on the edge as new and contemporary, something that's been written in the last two years. It has a life to it. Just to give you some of the history of it, it was first performed in the Netherlands in 1980, September of 1980. Its inspiration followed the first performance uh, in Europe and in France of Einstein on the Beach, Philip Glass's and Robert Wilson's work that was premiered in Avignon in the summer of 1976. The Netherlands opera director asked Philip Glass at that time if he would write a typical opera or an, write an opera for the Netherlands opera. And Philip Glass asked, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, use our forces. Use the singers, the operatic singers that we employ, and use the musicians of our orchestra for purposes of formulating a work that we would be able to present. Now Glass said, I'll, I'll take that under consideration, let's meet in a couple of months. When they did meet, he suggested that, that he would be in, in, interested in performing or in composing an opera, but also that he would, would use the basis of his opera, The Life of Gandhi, in South Africa, a, which had its own genesis in his, in his spiritual and intellectual development. Just a little bit about Philip Glass, uh, recognizing that, that his name and his music has probably been with us for a long time. He was born in Chicago, but I believe raised in, in Baltimore. His father had a record shop. What I like about this is his father was interested in music, music was important to them, and classical music as well as jazz and in contemporary music. Philip Glass and his, actually his father allowed him to then become the purchaser of the records that would be sold in the, in the music shop. He once ordered a couple of box sets of Schoenberg's music and it took four or five years for those to sell. But in the meantime, he would listen with his father to the music of Bartok, to Schoenberg, to the, the contemporary composers that, uh, that, that were in, were considered contemporary in the mid-1950s and the mid-part of the 20th century. One anecdote about that is that the record companies, uh, and what I like about this, is the record companies would actually take back the records and give you credit. So when they, you know, they, when they send the records to the store, you have to sell them, and if you don't sell them, you have to send them back. But they'll give you, the, in this instance, they would give his father credit for returning records, but you had to break the record in order to send it back to get the credit. So Philip Glass and his buddies would go down in the basement and break all these records so that his father could submit them for, uh, for, the, for, the, for the credit that he would get. I, I found that kind of interesting. So he probably broke some Schoenberg music as well, uh, records as well. Uh, he went to the University of Chicago as a young lad probably about the age of 14 or 15, early admission. He hadn't graduated from high school. He applied, they accepted him, so he was a younger than 18-year-old uh, student at the University of Chicago. He didn't study music there, although he did have several friends that, that would take him to jazz clubs, and by the time he hit 18, he could actually go with them inside. He graduated from the University of Chicago and then went to New York. Uh, he went to New York because he wanted to go to Juilliard, and so he auditioned for Juilliard, and they said, well, why don't you come back a little bit later? So he enrolled in extension classes, and, and took the extension classes and did well enough that he was matriculated and spent two years at Juilliard and earned a master's degree. Backing up just a, just a bit, when he was a young man, he studied both piano as a very young, young, young boy, but also studied flute. 
and became an accomplished flute player studying with the principal flutist of the Baltimore Symphony, but recognized that he wasn't going to be an instrumentalist. He then decided to study music and, and went to Juilliard. After finishing at Juilliard, he received a Fulbright scholarship and went to Paris to study with Nadia Boulanger. Now that name should mean something to you because she was this strict disciplinarian, but yet amazing music teacher and she gave private lessons to the best musicians and best composers that existed, some of whom you probably know, one of which was Aaron Copeland studied with Nadia Boulanger. Virgil Thompson studied with Nadia Boulanger. So Philip Glass went to Paris and studied with Nadia Boulanger, and she was very, very strict, and essentially broke down his musical studies starting from zero and teaching him technique and theory uh, and working with, uh, with he and a number of other students. After two years, he decided he would leave Nadia Boulanger, but by that time, he was writing music for avant-garde Paris theater drama productions, and he had met Ravi Shankar. Ravi Shankar, as we would now probably recognize, uh, one of the great musicians of India, and in being drawn to Ravi Shankar, Philip Glass on one occasion had to transcribe Indian music for a group of Western composer musicians so that they could perform it in a music score. And Indian music is written down in notation. And Glass said, what am I going to do? So he met with Shankar and met with Shankar and his musicians to talk about the music and Glass is saying, well, when are we gonna talk about the notation? And after four or five meetings, it was the time to record the music, and Shankar showed up with, uh, with Philip Glass, and they said, okay, let's start. They just started playing the music. And in doing so, Glass had to understand the Indian music and how it differed from Western music and what he had known, and had to find a way to devise it, to writing it down so that it can be transcribed for the musicians in Paris to play it for the film score. This was instrumental in his, Philip Glass's, development. So much so that all of the music that he had written at Juilliard, the music that he had composed as a young man, while it many, much of it was published, he depublished it. He rejected it. After this moment, he spent six months in India and North Africa studying the music, studying the culture, studying how music interacts with drama. And this influenced him greatly. On one of these trips, he was in the Himalayas and there was this, there was this man who f understood that there was a composer in town and met him, and he was actually a rug salesman, and he ran into Philip Glass and he said, called him Mr. Philip. He said, Mr. Philip, um, I wanna talk to you about music. You love the music. Um, I understand you also are interested in Gandhi. And by this point, Glass had been in India and seen the influence and seen the image and the importance of Gandhi to the culture. And so he began to absorb and study. And this fellow who ran into him said, there's, there's, they're going to be showing a documentary of Gandhi at the local theater and I've arranged for you and me to see it. So in this theater, Philip Glass with a local Himalayan merchant saw a six hour video or documentary on Gandhi, and this created a great impact on Philip Glass, so much so that he then began to study Gandhi and study the, um, the works that were important to him. So when the opera 
Einstein on the Beach was done, and the Netherlands opera director asked him to write an opera. Glass said, I'd like to write it on Gandhi and his years in South Africa. So that's the genesis of the work. The opera has many different levels. I'll start with, uh, you're going to be viewing it today, this evening, and what's, what, what may be a little disconcerting for those of us who have been going to opera for the last 25 or 30 years, there are no super titles. You're not going to see what the singers are singing. Now that's totally intentional. Uh, the opera, based on the events of Gandhi's life in South Africa from, from 1893, 1892 to, eight, to 1913, a 21-year period, uh, Gandhi evolved as a person. He evolved from a young lawyer coming from London to becoming the head of a nonviolent group called Satyagraha, which means truth force. Gandhi was influenced by the, the Hindu spiritual narrative in the uh, Bhagavad Gita. Uh, known as the Song of Lord, which is a part of the Mahabharata. And these, this is a narrative, it's a narrative dialogue between Prince Arjuan, or Prince Arjuna, and Lord Krishna. And in many ways, it is a spiritual discussion between someone who has questions about life and behavior, and this very much influenced Gandhi in his creation of the Satyagraha movement in South Africa. Um, and, and so we have in Glass's work, we have the, the text, the spiritual text of the narrative between Arjuna and Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, that is, the, in many ways, the overriding narrative text of what is happening spiritually with Gandhi. But we also have the actual physical activities of the historical events that Gandhi participated in when he was in South Africa and the discrimination that Indians received from the South African government and how Gandhi went about creating his nonviolent resistance and his culture to, to resist or at least to, um, to, throw, to show to the European government in South Africa how they were wrongly treating the Indians. Then we have, so we have the historical aspect, we have the Bhagav Bhagavad Gita a textual aspect, and then we have Philip Glass's interpretation of that. The opera is Philip Glass's interpretation and reflection of Gandhi's life in South Africa. So where, what, at what point um, do all of these intersect? And they intersect in all three of the acts. There are three acts in total, and uh, they are each divided basically into three separate scenes. A little bit about Gandhi in South Africa, uh, or about Gandhi in his life. Uh, he was born in India, of course, from a, a middle-class family. His father was a government official. He was the youngest child of his father's fourth marriage. He wasn't particularly good in school. He dropped out of college in India before his father died. His mother was an esthete. She was interested in fasting, many fasts, and in prayer. 
And this influenced not only the young Gandhi, but clearly influenced the, what, he, what happened to him when he was in South Africa. At the age of 13, <clears throat> he was, entered into a, a <clears throat> an arranged marriage to a 14-year-old. He remained married to that woman throughout his life. They had four sons. He studied law in London, uh, then went on returning to Mumbai, or Bombay as it was at the time. Uh, he couldn't make a living as a lawyer. Uh, I, you know, I made a living as a lawyer for a number of years. He couldn't conduct a cross-examination. Um, so he realized that if he was going to practice law, something else had to happen. So he got wind of, a, of a, an Indian merchant in South Africa who needed a lawyer who invited him to come to South Africa to mediate the dispute with another Indian family. He was paid, it was a contract for one year, and he was paid a little over 100 pounds. When he arrived in South Africa from, from Mumbai or Bombay, he came as a British subject. Remember, India was ruled by, by Great Britain at the time, and the Indians were, in fact, English subjects. So he came dressed in a suit, he had a first-class train ticket, and he figured he would be respected. The exact opposite happened. He got on, a, on the train, and they, they kicked him out of the first-class section, saying that Indians can't be in the first-class section. And he said, of course I can. I have a ticket, and I'm a British citizen. They threw him off the train, leaving his baggage and his coat on the train. He spent the night in a, in a, uh, in a, in a train station without any, any cover, and he essentially... I don't want to say he froze, but he was terribly uncomfortable because it was so cold. So he decided at this point, or at least he came to a conflict at this point, whether or not he was going to stay in India or do, take the easy task and go back, go back to India, stay in South Africa or go back to India. This is an important moment in Gandhi's life because it's the, it is the kernel of the beginning of the Satyagraha movement. He decides to stay rather than leave. And so in working for the Indian merchant and helping to resolve the conflict, uh, he begins the actions that he's taking to, to resist and to demonstrate how the, the racial discrimination against the Indians is not, is not reasonable and is not, in essence, truthful. He's so successful that on the, at the end of his one year, they throw him a party he's about to leave, and they say, would you please stay and continue your work? And he says, well, I can't stay because I don't have any money. So all of the Indian merchants decided to advance legal fees to, to Gandhi so that he could stay. And he stayed for 21 years. So while we know it in the context of history, what movement he created and the nonviolent movement, and as we'll see in this opera, and it's important how Philip Glass recognizes it, it takes place during 21 years. And so in the meantime, He's taking these actions and creating uh, ashrams, which are living communities and working within the Indian culture, but he's also living a life. And we don't know about the life he's leading, but I think he continues to practice law for the merchants. Now, in India, there were essentially two groups of Indians. There were the, the, the workers, uh, which worked the farms and the mines, and they were brought there because the labor was cheap in the late 19th century. And then because they were there, the merchants, the middle-class merchants from India came to act as merchants to sell these other Indian immigrants uh, their wares. So the merchants were the ones that employed Gandhi and kept him going. 
but Gandhi's work, of course, was, uh, was done for the entirety of the, of the community. So he stayed. Um, he worked to overturn the racial laws, gain notoriety. After four years, he went back to India for six months, and he was followed by the press at that time. So South Africa was gearing notices about what Gandhi was doing in India. And it came to pass that they gave the impression that, that Gandhi was going to return to India with 3,000 immigrants or thousands of other immigrants. So the the European community in South Africa became quite upset and thought that Gandhi was going to come back and bring all of these other immigrants, which the racial laws were trying to prohibit many more Indians from coming into the country. So when Gandhi's ship came back to Durban, it actually stayed off port for three weeks in quarantine. And during that time, the locals in Durban became quite upset. And by the time Gandhi disembarked, there was a vigilante group there that essentially chased him as he walked down the street. And at one point, the, the police commissioner's wife, Mrs. Alexander, comes forward and opens her umbrella. Well, that's what happens in the context of the opera. But she provides safety to Gandhi to allow him at least to proceed in that moment. This is another critical point in Gandhi's existence in South Africa. Uh, <clears throat> He forms then the Satyagraha movement. That is, Satyagraha means truth and force. And truth is never really defined, but it means essentially dignity to humans. And keep in mind, and this is very important in the context of understanding the work, is that the Satyagraha movement is nonviolent. As Gandhi says, while passive resistance, there is scope for the use of arms when a suitable occasion arises. In Satyagraha, physical force is forbidden, even in the most favorable circumstances. Passive resistance is often looked upon as preparation for the use of force, while Satyagraha can never be utilized as such. Satyagraha, there is not the remotest idea of injuring the opponent. This is really critical to understand, especially for those of us here who know, well, you've got one side and the other side, and there's conflict, and you, you, know, you work out the conflict. Conflict is not embodied in Satyagraha. There's this respect for your opponent. Even though they're your opponent, you have respect for them, and you treat them with the dignity that you feel entitled to. So the work happens incrementally. I'll give you an example of it. So the Indians are facing legislation from the, from the uh, South African government in terms of restricting their immigration, providing taxes, trying to get them to leave. Um, they make them register and carry cards. And this is the indignity that's being provided. And yet, when the Boer War occurred in South Africa, and the Western Europeans were fighting, the Dutch were fighting the English, essentially, the Indians, who were British subjects, formed an ambulance group to help the British in the context of the battle. So here is your, as we might see it, your opponent who's racially indignant to you, but yet you are helping them in their time of need. So keep this in mind. It is not we versus them. It is we are entitled to truth. And so we are going to take action necessary for us to receive truth. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to fight you in any physical battle. 
So how is this manifested in the context of the opera? So the opera starts with the first act, and each act is divided into three scenes. And so the text, again, is from the Bhagavad Gita, which is a religious spiritual work, and against the, the, the discussion, the narrative, and the dialogue between Arjuan and Krishna. And so the very first act takes place on a historic mythical battlefield. And it's a battlefield between two armies. And just about the point they're going to start, Arjuan, Prince Arjuan arrives and recognizes and recognizes that he knows and has family and friends on both sides of the conflict. And so he essentially wants to take no part of it and he doesn't want the battle to begin. So he asks Krishna, what am I supposed to do? And Krishna responds, and this is in, within the context of the Gita. It says, out, to, to the extent that Krishna responds, he says, be wise in the matters of death and duty. Recognize war as prescribed as duty. Hold pleasure and pain, profit and loss, victory and defeat to be the same. Then brace yourself for the fight so you will bring no evil on yourself. So this is difficult for us to get a hold of. What do you mean? In other words, the conflict is going to happen. Let it happen because it's going to happen. Recognize that there's no winner, there's no loser, they're the same. As, as Krishna says, outstanding is he whose soul views the self-same way, comrades and enemies, loving all alike. So as the opera begins, we have the genesis of Gandhi's spiritual nonviolent concept as expressed in the Gita, which is conflict is going to happen, but don't make it so subjective that there's a winner or a loser. They're the same. Don't put yourself in that position. Respect your opponent, respect yourself. It happens. So Krishna is saying, get over it, Arjuna. It's going to happen. And so Gandhi sings this at the beginning of the opera in the Sanskrit text. And so I'll give you some music in just one second, the last point. Philip Glass wrote the opera and kept the original Sanskrit, and that was entirely intentional. He didn't want you to focus on the words, on the text. He wanted the music and the stage presence to convey what is happening spiritually or what's happening within the drama. So the fact that there are no supertitles is entirely consistent with what, with what Philip Glass has intended. So the first scene is the external action of the battle between, that is going to take place between these two families. Now, in the context of the opera, when the lights come up on the two, on the two armies, one is the indigenous uh, Europe, not indigenous, but the European, the South Africans, the English and the Dutch, primarily the English, and the other army is the Indians. So we have Gandhi seeing that there is, are both sides there are two armies, and how is he going to, to work within those? And similar to him landing or coming to South Africa, where he has to decide whether he's going to leave or going to stay. And so that conflict is represented in this, this historic battle. Here is the, uh, the initial music.
So that's Gandhi appearing, singing the, the, the text about the conflict between the two warring groups. So then there is actually, in this opera, the chorus plays a very important part. Uh, it becomes, it's given a great deal of music, not only that, but it also serves as the representation of the people. Uh, and in the context of the first act, or the first scene of the first act, uh, here is the battle, essentially, between the two forces, or the in incipient battle, and how Glass handles this in the context of the dramatic music. of points. There is um, an aspect about the production uh, that's important to keep in mind. It takes place during the course of a single day. So the first act takes place at dawn break and the final act takes place in the evening. And while this covers a period of 21 years, Philip Glass has envisioned all of this opera taking place in a day. So we begin in the morning, we go to the mid-morning, we go to the afternoon, we go to the late afternoon, and we go in the evening. So the scenes will progress that way. And each of the acts has a, essentially what Philip Glass says, is a temporal relationship with the stage. There's an individual, there is one historic individual that is representative of the past, present, and future concept of the nonviolent Satyagraha movement. So you will see up sitting at a desk in the first act, Leo Tolstoy, who had a great influence on the young Gandhi. In the second act, you'll see the, the Nobel laureate, um, Rabindranath Tagore, who was a poet and playwright, who was a confidant of Gandhi in the contemporary world, known as the only moral authority that Gandhi recognized in his lifetime. And in the third act, representing the future, is Martin Luther King, who embraced the nonviolent concepts that were so much embodied in the Satyagraha movement and, and Gandhi. So these 
characters are non-singing characters and generally appear above the stage as and showing a temporal relationship between them historically and then the various scenes of the particular act in which they take place. The second scene of the second act takes place in 1910. It is the Ashram Tolstoy Farm. And this is a collective that Gandhi has created um, for, for families to live in one place, members of the collective community who are trained to live new, simple lives in harmony, to cook and build together, and fight on the behalf of truth, consisting chiefly in self-purification and reliance. So in this act, you'll see women and members essentially in a, in a, uh, taking care of agriculture. So the concept of work is important to the Satyagraha in the sense of it's not, you're not doing work for the purpose of benefiting yourself or finding easy work or, or strong work. It is work for work's sake. And you're taken care of by the collective, but you just work because that gives dignity to yourself. Now, again, this is a spiritual aspect. In this particular scene, we'll meet Gandhi's wife, uh, and we'll meet his, his secretary, uh, Miss Schlesen, as well as another neighbor, and how Gandhi then brings in his friends uh, and other members of the ashram to sing in a, in a chorus. So here's a part of a later quintet that takes place uh, in the second scene of the first act. So the women are singing, do the allotted task for which one is fit, for work is more excellent than idleness, and the body's life proceeds not lacking work. And Kallenbach, one of the other characters, who historically was actually the individual who bought the land upon which the ashram or the Tolstoy farm was created, Kallenbach, when the motives and the fruits of man's action are freed from desire, his works are burned clean by wisdom's fire and the white fire of truth. So in the final scene of the first act, it's called The Vow, the British government has instituted re-registration and fingerprinting of all Indians. They have to carry cards. Police are permitted to enter their homes without notice. Offenses are punishable by fines, jail, or deportation. It's known as the Black Act. Gandhi organizes a public rally attended by 3,000. Their resolution is to resist the act unto death to take a vow in the name of God and every conceivable hardship, even to the last one standing. Here is the music that begins the final scene of the first act.
Try to notice the subtle movements of the music that it's just not the same thing over and over again. So one critic actually said early on that it sounds like Philip Glass's music is the needle stuck in the record. Uh, in fact, it's not. It, it does change subtly. And if you do want yourself to close your eyes and just go with the rhythm of the music, um, I find that an entirely an acceptable way to listen, entirely acceptable way to listen to this music and this opera. Each act is divided into a certain structural way dramatically. Something externally happened, as in the battlefield, then something internally happened within the context of the Satyagraha, the Tolstoy farm. And then the resolution of that is the action that the Satyagraha take, in this instance, the vow to resist the, the legislation that calls for re-registration. So in the second act, we have that same structure. So the first external, external point in the second act is Gandhi's return in 1896, where Mrs. Alexander, where he's essentially lynched by the vigilantes because they think he's bringing back uh, a group of Indians in that, that shouldn't be coming, in other words, immigrants, and that he has essentially bad-mouthed uh, the, 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 the South Africans to foreign governments. And Mrs. Alexander comes forward and saves him from this lynching. We'll hear this scene because it's dramatic. It shows really the viciousness of the men uh, as compared to, to Mrs. Alexander. The men sing, this I have gained today, this whim I'll satisfy, this wealth is mine and much more too will be mine as time goes on. He was an enemy of mine. I've killed him and many others like him. I'm master here. I take my pleasure as I will. I'm strong and happy and successful. And Mrs. Alexander sings, 
the devilish folk in them, there is no purity, no morality, no truth. So they say the world has not a law, nor order, nor a lord. And thinking this, all those dark-minded ones of little wit embark on cruel and violent deeds. They have no other aim than to satisfy their pleasure. She protects Gandhi from this, this, this uh, vicious mob. So the second act, the first scene is entitled Confrontation and Rescue. The second act is the Indian Opinion. This is a newspaper that Gandhi created with his collective. It was published. It talked about the Satyagraha, what their movement was. It showed how it could improve. It was, it was distributed some 20,000 people during the height of its circulation. Uh, everyone received it. Uh, the second scene has some of the most glorious music in the opera, in many ways very Wagnerian, not as we might think of leitmotifs, but it's very large. The third scene in the second act, again, the external, the confrontation, the internal, what the Satyagraha are doing for themselves, and then how that manifests itself externally is in the protest. So in the final scene of the second act, it's called the protest, and this is where the movement leaders have been sentenced to jail for disobeying an order to leave South Africa, having no record of registration costs. Um, 150 are already in jail. The government said, then comes to the Satyagraha and Indians and say, if you voluntarily register, we'll repeal the Black Act. So the Indians agree to do that, but the government reneges. So Satyagraha gives the government an ultimatum, repeal that law or we'll collect our registration cards and will burn them. The government doesn't repeal. There is a public burning of the registration cards. This is the baptism of fire for the Satyagraha in a very important movement, not only in the opera, but in the context of the work that, that Gandhi did. 
So I'm getting to the third act, and quickly, because we only have a few minutes left, and the reason I'm doing that is that this becomes a very, uh, the, the final act takes us from the external world and brings it inside, at least musically and spiritually. It's very much in the, in the way of a sacred cantata. So to the extent we've had large choral scenes, in the third act, the music has a very contemplative, religious aspect to it. And let me just play the beginning of the third act, which is we're going to hear the voices that sing in what for others is night. Therein is the man of self-restraint wide awake. He roves through the world separate from passion and hate, self-possessed and drawing near to calm. So at this point, because of the government refusal to re to to re reject the racial laws and, in fact, impose more onerous ones requiring a payment of half of their year's salary to stay in South Africa if they don't leave after seven years and not allowing other immigrants in, the Satyagraha decide that they're going to create an actual movement where they march on Newcastle, which is, which is a mine, and get the, the, the Indian workers there to join them and go to the collective Tolstoy farm. It doesn't happen in the opera. We have the folks thinking about the march and beginning the spiritual movement that will take this action. And, and Glass has that, has that music, that sense of, of spirituality in, in every, every bit of the third act. Here's the first movement. In the second scene, the police come and they remove the arrest and remove the satyagraha, arresting them and putting them in prisons. And so while the stage empties, uh, we see up with behind Martin Luther King, who's facing away from the stage, we see people beginning to gather in front of him. Gandhi is left on the stage at the, fun, the final scene, and it's essentially a prayer. Gandhi sings, the Lord said, I have passed through many a birth and many have you. For whenever the law of righteousness withers away and lawlessness arrives, then do I generate myself on earth. I come into being age after age for the protection of good, thrusting evil back and setting virtue on her seat again. 
Gandhi sings this prayer in the same phrase 30 times. So in the end, the opera is really a morality play in the tradition of Western thought, as devised by Philip Glass for the vision of Eastern religion and Gandhi. In the end of the opera, the folks that, the individuals that have been arrested appear in front of Martin Luther King, and the lights come on, and they represent the resistance, the nonviolent resistance, and the folks that followed Martin Luther King, inspired by Gandhi. Friends, enjoy the opera. Thank you so much. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.